Hi, I'm Julie Sokol. I'm on the CCV Council. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Revelation to John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, on the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches in Asia. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his faith was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid at his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During World War II, in French, uh, German-occupied France, a French resistance uh, began to take shape that was trying to push against the German authorities who had controlled the country. They had to create a whole series of coded languages and coded messages so they could pass on messages without the Gestapo, the German secret police, finding out. They were amazing and brave people who uh, helped get uh, so soldiers who'd been allied soldiers who had uh, been shot down to uh, safety. They got messages out to let uh, the allies know what the Germans were doing. And in every possible way, they resisted the oppressive um, enemy that was over them. But they had to use coded messages the whole time because if they were caught, they were done. The BBC started producing messages to them from the Allied commanders that included famous uh, coded messages like, the chair is against the wall. John has a long mustache. And the French resistance knew what these meant, even though the Germans struggled to figure it out. The book of Revelation that we are beginning on sounds like that. And in some ways, that's exactly right. It is meant to be a resistance document for people who are under the oppressive Roman authorities and who live in a world of exile. And in that sense, it's a message for all people at all times. New Testament uh, theologian Richard Hayes put it this way, the book of Revelation is above all else a political resistance document. It refuses to acknowledge the legitimacy and authority of earthly rulers and looks defiantly to the future when all things will be subjected to the authority of God. So how do we read a book like Revelation with all of its confusing imagery and allusions and seemingly coded language? Well, one of the things we have to do is read it the same way we read any other passage of scripture, or for that matter, how we read anything. 
We do this intuitively with other parts of the world. And it's something you learn early on as a kid in school, which is the genre matters. The genre matters. If you're reading a nonfiction uh, description, it is very different than a poem. And we have to understand that the book of Revelation is a prophetic, apocalyptic letter. And those are all important parts of it. But the one that's the most confusing for most of us is how to read an apocalyptic letter or literature, because it was a genre from about the 4th or 5th century BC to the early centuries AD that were specifically understood in Jewish contexts, like John, who's writing this one. What we have to see is that it's filled with stylistic language, and it's not necessarily meant to be read literally, word for word, in the same way you would read a textbook that was telling you about mathematics. It's more meant to be read like a poem. It's filled with symbolism and metaphor. So this is seen in the book of Psalms with all of its poetry, but it's also seen in Jesus' parables. When Jesus is telling a parable, we don't necessarily think at the end of time there's going to be literal sheep and literal goats, but it is telling us about something in a different way. The prodigal son is a parable with imagery and allusions to God the Father in his loving embrace of two sons who reject him. That's us, right? And we get that. When we get to Revelation, we need to do the same sort of thing. It's filled with imagery like beasts and dragons and riders and trumpets and all these sorts of things that conjure up all sorts of Im images, some of them grotesque and scary and bizarre, almost like one of those dreams that you wake up from and you're wondering how all these things connect. You realize, oh, it's just a dream. But one of the things we need to do is be careful to not just jump to literal connections that is sometimes what we do with some parts of Scripture because we believe it is true, but how we understand what the truth is is understanding the genre and what God is trying to say through it. So as an example, in chapter 4, we get a description of Christ, but the description is that he is a slaughtered lamb with seven eyes. Now, we don't jump to the conclusion that Jesus, the risen and ascended Jesus, is a, uh, a baby sheep that has been killed and also happens to have seven pupils. Rather, as we're reading that, we can understand a couple things, that the slaughtered lamb was from the Passover. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as we'll see, even the number seven means perfection. He is the perfect atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Not, he is a fuzzy woolen sheep that's happened to be killed and had seven bizarre eyes. And this is the importance of understanding things like the role of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Revelation, according to scholars, has over 500 references to the Old Testament, some direct quotations and others clear allusions like the lamb that has been slain. And we need to understand the Old Testament in order to understand the apocalyptic literature of Revelation. And to understand this, there's actually nothing new in Revelation. Revelation is telling in new ways the story that has been told all along. And so all of those biblical understandings from the Old Testament allusions to what God has done in Jesus Christ in the gospel is what is being retold in the book of Revelation. So we need to know the Old Testament. 
And that includes the role that numbers played in the Old Testament. John in the book of Revelation is filled with all sorts of excitement about numbers. But we don't just jump to our modern conclusions on these things. We do have to see how the Old Testament understood some of these things. So the number seven is constantly in the book of Revelation. And we get from very early on in the book of Genesis that seven was the, the picture of perfection and completion, wholeness. This is the full amount. And so that's where our mind should go when we see seven. It's just whole, complete, full. Similarly, the number 12 is really important in the book of Revelation, or um, 12 times 12, 144, or 12,000, these sorts of things. And again, 12 is not just some number. It has to do with the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we understand in the New Testament, the 12 apostles, right, the 12 disciples, were meant to be a reconstituted Israel. And even to this day, the church is the new Israel in that sense of, the whole number of those who are God's people. And so it's all God's elect, all God's chosen people, all those people who put their faith in Christ could be, how many of them are there? Well, 12, or 12 times 12, or 12 times 12 thousands. So those are some of the things we need to hold um, sort of loosely. Secondly, is it, it's an apocalyptic letter, but it's also prophetic. And when we hear prophetic, often what we think is the future. But prophetic in a biblical sense, especially in Old Testament sense, and in the sense of revelation, is the way that the Old Testament prophets said, thus saith the Lord. It was a declaration of God about truth. It was basically a prophet in the Old Testament was preaching a sermon with a particular point in order to elicit a response, usually of repentance or of trust in God. So that's actually the big ideas behind most prophetic literature is God saying, repent and trust me. In other words, it's not explicitly or primarily details that we need to try to directly connect. It is not fortune telling. It is not the horoscope, the Christian version of the horoscope. So one of the things that I think we need to be careful of is constantly trying to tie current events to the end as described in the book of Revelation. One example of this that's been done for years, at least in my observation as a Christian, is in chapter 13, there's a talk of a beast, the beast with 10 horns that's associated with the Antichrist. And so people who try to directly connect it for years have tried to connect it to all sorts of political figures and their different realms. So when I was a kid, it was not uncommon to connect the beast with 10 horns to Mikhail Gorbachev, who was a former leader president of the USSR, because it had a certain number of countries that were part of the USSR or part of the Warsaw Pact countries. And so those are the 10 horns. And he was a leader coming in peace, but was really going to trick everyone. The Pope, every Pope basically has been called the Antichrist, the beast. More recently, if you go look on the internet, don't do it, uh, Bill Gates is the most recent one who's clearly coming as an antichrist. And I'm not saying that we can't say that people represent things opposed to God, but those direct connections are not what John is getting at here. And we know from what Jesus said about the end is that we can't know how or when or who. 
nor does it matter. It doesn't change what we're called to do. But instead, often we're driven by curiosity or that sense of, if I know everything that's going to happen, I'm more in control. And it's actually fear that's motivating us. And that is not what Revelation is about. Revelation is, is, is about giving us hope and courage because it is not just seeking to connect things direct one-to-one, -one, but to capture our imagination in a new way with the glory and majesty of God and that all things are in his hands and in his control. So the, the idea of revel, revelation and all of this imagery and symbolism is meant to help, help us to see what God has been doing all along in a new way. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on Revelation, talks about it this way. The revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know regarding the gospel and what God is doing, what God has done and will do, but there is a new way to say it. I read the revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. A revelation, an apocalyptic, is basically just that. It's a revealing. It's an unveiling or a pulling back of the curtain to see something that you couldn't see that was maybe there all along. The book of Revelation asks us to view our present experience, the life that we're living right now, whenever right now is, whoever's reading Revelation, in light of spiritual and eternal realities. In other words, if you could pull back the veil on the physical world we see, you would see the world in the way that God sees it. That's what Revelation is doing when it's taking us up to heaven, into the throne room of God and saying, look at the world and look at history as I see it. Paul Spilsbury, in the book, The Throne, The Lamb, and The Dragon, puts it this way. Revelation is out to undermine our confidence in the evidence of our own eyes. It wants us to leave behind the idea that what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears is all there is. Revelation is giving us a set of counter images, counter images of hope in a world of doubt, counter images of God's power in a world where we are filled with fear and threats. You know, the first century world that, that uh, John is writing to in the book of Revelation was saw the power of Rome all around. It's the end of the first century and they see pictures and images of Roman authority and pagan temples and pagan practices and Roman legions of armies and the fear and the majesty and the authority of Rome was in their face all the time. And through the book of Revelation, God is saying, that's not all there is. Richard Baucom, New Testament theologian, writes this. Revelation provides a set of Christian prophetic counterimages which impress on its readers a different vision of the world, how it looks from heaven. The visual power of the book affects a kind of purging of the Christian imagination, refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and will be. So, I want to, us to hold all of that as we read the book of Revelation together over the next six weeks. Here are some of my assumptions 
and in my direction in reading Revelation. So I'm going to give you some things I'm not going to fully give you all the details on, but just how I'm going to be reading this as you're listening in as well. The first has to do with an understanding of the kingdom of God and where we are in the whole realm of history and God's kingdom. So there are two primary ways of looking at God's kingdom, and they have to do with traditions in faithful Christianity. There is um, the two big ones nowadays are a dispensational view of reading the church and reading scripture and reading history and in um, a covenantal view. Those are the two that I'm going to be playing with a little bit. Um, In the premillennial or the the dispensational view, it talks about different uh, periods or epochs, dispensations of what God was doing, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the church era, and the future. And in that, there has been the most common understanding and reading of this is that uh, there's a certain passage towards the end of Revelation that talks about the, the millennial reign of Christ, when peace reigns on this earth for a thousand years. And in the dispensational traditional view, that thousand years is a literal thousand years at the end of time before the resurrection of the dead to eternal life. The other view, which is the one that I'm going to take, is the um, covenantal view, and it's uh, it it's called amillennial, which basically means there's not an actual literal thousand years, but as numbers and things like that are represented, it is ongoing even now. We live in the kingdom age now. We live in the kingdom age um, in a way that is the spirit of God has come, Christ has died and rot- risen and is ascended, so we live in the kingdom now. And yet, it's not in full. And so we live in a time when God's kingdom is overlaid with the powers of this world, and those times of tribulation are are happening at the same time. So we talk about it in, in the way that I'll be talking about it as we live now in the time between two advents, the arrival advent of Christ the first time and the arrival advent the second time. And we live in a time that's the already and not yet. We already experience the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in us. We experience intimacy with God, but it's not yet in full. So that's sort of the wording that I use. And I can talk to you about this more explicitly if you're somebody who's interested in this and where I went and how I actually changed some of what I understood. And I'll give you, um, I used to buy into a different set, which would have been the dispensational view, and particularly the idea of a rapture, which I'm going to tell you, I've told you before, um, has very little biblical evidence. It's the same sort of biblical evidence that um, that is there for snake handling in in scripture, which it's, there's some versions of it's in there, but I wouldn't build a theology around it. And whole theologies are built around it. But I, I that was a view that I used to hold, and many Christians, especially in the West and in America, hold that I think is not it's not built around traditional understandings of the book of Revelation or the end times. And so I want us to go back to that. And so what I've understood um, and what got me to where I think about these things is church history. There, there have been proponents of the view that we live in between this time where it's an already not yet the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man are on the top of each other. They, 
Augustine believed that, Luther believed that, Calvin believed that, the Anglicans uh, hold to that, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox, the Presbyterians, and many denominations around the globe. In fact, the vast majority of people have bought into and believe that is the best evidence of what's in the scripture. On top of that, um, one of the challenges that I have uh, with the alternative reading is that it uh, kind of pushes down the persecuted church throughout history and the challenges that people have had. It's looking for some great tribulation at the end as opposed to recognizing that throughout the centuries, whether it was under Nero or um, in the first centuries under Rome, or even the way Christians have experienced around the world, or the suffering that people have uh, experienced at the hands of other people in genocides and horrors in, in global empires and what they have done to people, that those sorts of tribulations are not just at the end, but they happen in life now. And yet, the Holy Spirit is on the move and working in God's people already. The kingdom of God is already um, kind of breaking in on this fallen and broken and painful world. So those things are happening at the same time. For me, the biblical evidence uh, for this understanding of the already not yet world, that we live in the kingdom of God even as we endure tribulation even now, um, makes the most sense of the scriptural messaging and having a theological and gospel-oriented integrity to it. One example of this um, and I'm going to give you the alternative view and then sort of my understanding of it a little bit is the way that um, in certain readings of the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast is a very scary, big thing. So at the end of chapter 13, it talks about don't receive the mark of the beast. And it's this number 666, which is put on your forehead and your right hand. And so people have been anxious for years about things like tattoos or when microchips were developed, that people were going to get microchips implanted. And it's even a reason why people are afraid of getting the COVID vaccine. The, some people think that it is going to have a microchip in it, which is going to be the mark of the beast, and then you're done for. You don't get to get into heaven. In the very next verse, after that verse, is the beginning of chapter 14, which says that God's people, his saints, his servants, that's us, believers, are marked by God. So there's a mark of the beast and there's the mark of God. It says that he has sealed us with his name, the name of his son and the name of the father on our forehead. So we're not also looking to get a God microchip put in us or a God tattoo put on our forehead because we understand that spiritually. Ephesians says that we all have been marked sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee that we will enter eternity. So if we're going to understand even both of these, right, I think the, the better way to understand them is God is saying, in, in the, or the book of Revelation is saying, you can bow to the kingdoms of this world or bow to me. One or the other is, your, is going to be the one you're going to serve. You're either going to serve the gods of this world or the one true God. You're either going to rely on Christ as your savior or you're going to rely on something else. And anything else is an antichrist. What is going to mark you? As a believer in Christ, we are marked by the Holy Spirit. We are God's children. And in that sense, it gives us assurance and hope and not fear. Enables us to posture ourselves towards the world, not um, trying to escape or avoid or um, be adversarial or defensive, but seek to engage it and transform it and to push God's kingdom into this fallen, dark, and broken world.
Here's where I want to kind of land on this before I just look a little bit at the reading that we had today. When you read something like Revelation or any passage, you and I should read it the way I would have you read any passage of Scripture, which is, what's the big idea? What's the purpose the author intended for the original audience? So you have to understand the context of the original audience and the author's intent and how it would have been understood by them. And why did God include this? Why did God include the book of Revelation? Why was that a message we need to hear? What is God's aim? Revelation has something to say to us today. And it's about how to live faithfully as exiles. So in Revelation chapter 1, in verses 9 through 11, which we read earlier, we read, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And then next verse, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So John is writing a letter in the late 90s, mid 90s AD. Domitian is the emperor of Rome and he is um, exiled himself to an island called Patmos in the Mediterranean. And he's writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And so, of course, a couple things to, to remember as we're trying to understand what did the author mean and what, it, what would it have been understood by them um, is the seven churches might not just be seven churches. It's probably all the churches in Asia Minor. It was a circular letter meant to go around to all of them and seven would have been all of them all the churches. And in that sense, it's the church, big C, the church is. He's writing to the church. And in this sense too, we should ask, anytime we're reading anything, would my interpretation of this passage, would it be plausible to a first century Turkish Christian? Because what John is writing was meant to be for them first. And then secondly, we need to understand who John is. So John says that um, he is a partner with them in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. So he is somebody who is already suffering. He's talking about the tribulation as something he is enduring and they're enduring. Not something to happen way down the line. It's we're enduring tribulation and suffering, probably at the hand of the Romans. And yet we are members of the kingdom of God. Not a kingdom that's far distant, but already God's kingdom has broken into our lives and is breaking into the world around us. And this calls for patient endurance. We are called to endure faithfully in the midst of suffering with the hope of the kingdom that has been birthed in us and will one day be seen in full. It is a letter, the book of Revelation. We have to understand that in that way. But it is a letter primarily about the ascended, risen, and enthroned Christ. Look at what we get when John has the vision of the ascended and enthroned Christ. It's a crazy vision, but it again, in that apocalyptic language, is meant to give us hope. He says, in the midst of what he saw, he saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. So, that imagery, son of man, and yet white, super white and fiery eyes. You know, 
where this comes from? It's a direct reference and then an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, which we looked at last week. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is brought into the throne room of God and sees the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, God Almighty sitting on the throne as judge. And he is pure white and his eyes are of fire. It is God's holiness and God's power and God's justice. And then a couple of verses later, we have the description of the Son of Man, a human, a Messiah Savior. And basically what John is saying here is the Son of Man is the Ancient of Days. This Jesus, the human Jesus, is the Lord God Almighty who reigns. That's who is on the throne. And he goes on to say in verses 15 and 16, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. His voice, a roar like, like Niagara Falls, and he's holding stars of the cosmos in his hand, and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. So what do we do with that? John is giving us hyperbole to describe the indescribable. He keeps saying it's like this. It's like a roaring waters. It's like a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's basically trying to figure words. Like his face was so bright I couldn't look at it like staring at the sun. It's words. He's trying to give words to the indescribable glory and greatness and terror and authority and power and worship of this Jesus. This Jesus is not just a man who walked around in first century Palestine. This Jesus is ascended to the throne and he already reigns. Which is why, in his own words, this ascended Jesus says in verse 17, it says, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, a very human and comforting thing. But then he says, he says, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He is the first and the last. He is the, the creator and he is the end and aim of all things. He died and is alive. He has ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. Christ already reigns. It's not in doubt. And he holds the keys of death. The greatest power on this earth is death. It is the effect of sin, and it is our greatest fear, and he's the warden, the gatekeeper, the key holder of it. He has complete and total authority. The curtain is pulled back, and the first thing that John sees is Jesus Christ is Lord of all. This is the biggest idea of Revelation. And that's why Revelation is a message for those in exile, for those who want to be faithful in exile. It calls us to a few things. It calls us to worship the one on the throne and to follow the lamb. It therefore calls us into suffering because when you have allegiance to a lamb who was slaughtered, it means you follow him into suffering and possibly even death. And it calls us, the book of Revelation, to endurance, not escape, not trying to figure out when this is going to happen so we can get out of here, but to faithfulness to the end, 
not bowing down to the world's lords and saviors. It calls us, as Paul Spilsbury says in his book, to a particular kind of discipleship, following a slaughtered lamb, bearing witness to the reality of the one on the throne. It is also a discipleship of resistance, challenging us to stand against the dragon, Satan, whose imperial ambition is being played out on the world stage. And in that sense, it is also a call of hope to be assured that God alone is on the throne, no matter what it looks like in this earth, whether it's Domitian or some other person who's a president or whoever is over you or over us, there is one who rules. It is not what it looks like. Jesus won already. So how do we live now as exiles? In light of the true reality that the book of Revelation pulls back the curtain on. And what do we see? Well, right in the middle of Revelation is a high point. You might recognize it. Where it says in Revelation eleven fifteen the reality that we need to live in light of. It is this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, no fear. <laughs>